They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Decentralized Revolution. I'm Aaron, I'm your host. Big show today with a great guest, but before we get to him, a couple of announcements from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. We should have, by the first couple of days in May, a decision on exactly what's happening with the Libertarian National Convention, which is now scheduled for Austin over Memorial Day weekend. It looks like um, things are going to go off in one form or another, but we're not sure. So that's why we're still asking everyone who's a delegate or an alternate to hold on to your spot, even if you think you might not be able to travel for some reason, because there's a good chance we're told that delegates will be permitted to vote remotely. Also, if you've got plane tickets, accommodations, things like that, please hold on to those if there's a chance you can still come. Because even if delegates can vote remotely, we want as many Mecocks there in person as possible for obvious reasons. Of course, as long that's all all of that is predicated on you feeling comfortable enough health wise and can afford to travel. Uh, so please, if uh, your family or your health gets in the way, take care of that first. Second, we're almost to our goal of getting 10 written reviews on the podcast services for this podcast, Decentralized Revolution. And once we do get to 10 reviews, I'll select one of those reviewers randomly to win a copy of Economics and Ethics of Private Property by the great Hans Hermann Hoppe. So if you want a shot at the book, just leave a review of this podcast on any podcatcher service and send me a screenshot of it at the email address I'm going to give you in a second. Or you can send it as a message to the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus Facebook page. So screenshot your review, send it to me there, or at communications at lpmisescaucus.com. That's communications with an S at lpmisescaucus.com. Finally, uh, we should be announcing soon the details of a series of debates we're staging on our Facebook page. Looks like we're going to do at least one uh, LP presidential debate, one vice presidential debate, and hopefully a debate between Joshua Smith and his main opponent for LNC chair, we're trying to get all the relevant schedules to align and nail these dates and times down. So as soon as we do, we'll announce the details in our Facebook group and in the weekly email newsletter, which you can sign up for at TakeHumanAction.com. And now that we've got the housekeeping off the boards, it's my pleasure to present my interview with the man that I think Jeff Dice called the best communicator of libertarian ideas we have today. You all know him from his podcast, Part of the Problem, the one and only Dave Smith. 
All right, and my guest today, a guy I've been waiting to get on for a while. I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to have uh, you know, another good podcaster on, a great podcaster, Dave Smith. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh it's a pleasure. Great. Um so I, I don't expect you to um uh disclose a, a location, but uh you're outside of the city uh taking care of your family. How's everything going? Everybody healthy? Uh what what's going on? Yeah, every, everybody's healthy and I am uh I'm really feel quite fortunate and blessed uh, that everybody in my family is uh, is healthy and I'm able to uh, to make a living from uh, um, from home at at this point. Not not quite as good of a living uh, without the the road stuff. But uh, but thinking about how many people out there are, you know, I I can't imagine what it's like to have a couple kids and and both, you know, the mom and dad lose their jobs. And so I'm quite um, I'm, I'm I've been lucky through this whole thing. Is a, is a health health everybody's okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, everybody's doing good. That's good. Yeah, we're always concerned with the little kids and older people, so I'm glad to hear that. Um, so I talked to uh, Amaj earlier today, and he had one request for you to get him on Joe Rogan. I, I don't know if you have that kind of pull or not. Yes, I know people. Uh, people are always asking me to, uh, you know, get so-and-so or someone else on Joe Rogan. I've I, ever since I did the show the first time, I've gotten a lot of these requests. And uh, believe me, if you're if you're out there and you're like, hey, you should tell Rogan to have Scott Horton on or tell Tom Woods on, believe me, I have had this thought myself. I, I have tried. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot turns out a lot of people want to get on that show. And it's not uh, it's not my call. What do you think uh, makes him such a, such a success? Um, I think that uh, he... Joe Rogan always had a really good internet presence, even before that wasn't a thing. Like the old JoeRogan.net used to be like get crazy traffic. And Joe has a quality about him where he can he can discuss many different topics in a really interesting way. And he's you always kind of want to hear what his take would be on a certain issue. And he's got what's a very rare quality. Um, is that he's willing to dive into conversations and willing to have his mind changed. Like he doesn't go in with a firm, like, this is my view. And if someone says something that sounds right, he'll go, hey, that sounds like a really good point. And if someone who says something that smells like BS, he'll be like, that smells like BS to me. And it's just the whole thing came together. You know, he started at the right time and it it's just has become a phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a, I've seen headlines in the last couple of days about, uh, there's a, a, an official with the federal reserve saying we got to be prepared for 18 months of lockdowns and stuff like that. What I, I just want to hear your take on all this, that, you know, it's the, the bubble is going to pop anyway, and now they're going to blame it on the coronavirus. And I don't see how they think that things can people can survive if they shut the economy down for for that long. So where do you think this is headed? Um, Well, I I don't think we're going to be shut down for 18 months. I just can't imagine that they would. You'd you'd actually be talking about the complete destruction, you know, of of the United States of America. And and I just don't see how that would be in the parasitical class's interest. I mean, it's it's killing the host. This is where their tax stock. So I think they're going to want us to get back to work at a certain point. Um, and I don't know how much longer they can push it. Uh, of course, though, you know, if you were uh, the Federal Reserve or one of these big banks, sure, you want to see it go on as long as you can because you're you're getting even more filthy, stinking rich than you already were. Um, 
But then there are a lot of people and probably in politics, in the media class and just people um, who kind of have the Elizabeth Warren view of economics, which basically ignores scarcity. And they they operate under the assumption that business owners are all basically billionaires. Um, and so maybe it, it just doesn't they don't completely understand that millions of businesses are going because they had such razor thin profit margins are going to be put out because of this. And that it, it actually turns out that demand doesn't even really matter. What matters is production. And when production comes to a standstill, you're going to have real economic pain. What uh what are you seeing and hearing from people in the comedy business? I know there's tons of small clubs all throughout the country, small, medium, and big. They rely on basically selling food and drinks and selling tickets. Are, are these guys going to have to borrow big to get back in business after it? What, what are you hearing from them? Yeah, I mean, from, from what I'm hearing, they're all really hurting. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if many of them go out of business uh, because of this and or, you know, are, have to borrow this money. But again, with with in general, with the nightclub industry, there's not enough profit margin to take on these huge loans and then, be yeah. you know, like like even if they were to get back to business, they were most of them were barely just getting by to begin with. Um, so I, I, I think you're going to see a lot of comedy clubs close and all types of different clubs. And um there's for a lot of comedians who there, there's a lot of guys who just make their money in stand up who don't do podcasts and things like that. And those guys have, have been in real trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's too bad. I, I know that my wife and I are trying to go around a couple times a week to buy from like local restaurants and stuff like that and uh, doing everything we can to go support the people that that we're still allowed to uh, support. So I, I hope uh, for for your sake and for everybody else's that that's, that this uh, comes around and that that whole industry isn't just completely smashed. Um, another news thing that came across just now is that Bernie uh, finally uh, endorsed Biden. So what's your what are you surprised by that? <laughs> <laughs> I am whatever the polar opposite <laughs> yeah. of surprised is. Um, uh, yeah, no, of course, this is this is what we knew was was always going to happen. And there there's a real dilemma for Bernie Sanders supporters. And it's been it's been really fascinating to watch. And, and I would just say that to my, like my message to libertarians is that now is not the time to uh, call them a bunch of dirty commies. Uh, now is probably a better time to, to empathize with some of them and see if maybe there's you know, the, there, there might be something to work with there, at least maybe form an alliance on certain issues, because those those Bernie Sanders progressives are good on about five or six issues, um, which is more than I can say for, you know, the neocons or the neoliberals. Um, and look, Bernie Sanders, they're, they're starting to see that their hero was not who they thought he was. And if you're going to say that the the establishment is so bad that we need a revolution in his words we need a political revolution but they're not so bad that i would criticize them to their face yeah. and they're not so bad that i wouldn't endorse them once they win the nomination you've got a real that's that's a really tough square to circle and um that, and i think a lot of people are 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 realizing that now a lot of the bernie bros are having a moment of disillusion and um, that I think it's not a bad idea for us to talk to them in this moment. Did you talk to about this to Jimmy Dore? I haven't heard. Uh, I haven't listened to that episode yet. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Dore, um, when both when I was on his show and when he came on my show, uh, I mean, he he is just 
um, relentless in his uh, fury uh, against Bernie Sanders. And I, I, I sympathize with him for it. Uh, you know, I don't want to use that sympathize word the wrong way. I get in trouble for that. But, uh, but I do. I sympathize with him for that because he's sitting there going, how, how in the world did Bernie Sanders and AOC just vote to support the largest transfer of wealth in human history from the taxpayers to the corporate elite? It's everything they're supposed to be against and, um, and, and principled people like Jimmy Dore are against it. I was going to call you out for calling him the great Jimmy Dore. I think that yeah, <laughs> and obviously you have too much sympathy for the, these lefties, Dave. Listen, isn't it? Isn't there something pretty entertaining about the fact that <laughs> how two, many two things? How many complaints well, did you get about that? Zero. Okay. Zero complaints for calling the Jimmy Dore great. Of course, because as, as everybody knows, we philosophically have so much more in common with Jimmy Dore than we do with Stefan Molyneux, right, right? right? Like there's so much more overlap with Jimmy Dore. And, and and this is, by the way, I predicted this when this whole thing was going on. I said I could call Tulsi Gabbard great. I could call any of these lefties great. No one would care. But then just notice two things, right? This is all I'd say. Number one, notice that all of these, you know, Facebook pages and Twitter accounts that were relentlessly attacking me. None of them had anything to say about the Jimmy Dore episode. That's number one. And number two, I do better outreach to the left than they do. So I think there's something I'm not just trying to pat myself on the back, maybe a little bit, but I think there's a lesson to be learned there that actually this hysteria and name calling and everything's racist isn't going to that will never appeal to anyone. First off, the people who are completely bought into the social justice warrior nonsense are never going to be swayed to libertarianism to begin with. They're it's like trying to convince Mormons to be Protestants. It's you're, it's not going to happen. This is a religious belief. And number 2, anyone decent on the left who you think there might be some benefit in talking to they don't care about any of that social justice crap. Yeah, yeah you're right. Let's let's talk about the left. Uh, as someone who yourself kind of came from uh, the left, what makes is that what makes you a good uh, outreach uh, person to them? Because you under, maybe just because you understand them where they're coming from. Maybe. Um, although, you know, to my surprise, which was really one of the things that I never would have predicted or seen coming. But I actually have pulled a lot more people from the right than I have from the left. I always assumed just because I came from the left, I'm a Jew from New York, I was raised by a single mother. I just, just culturally, you know, I grew up without religion, just culturally I, I am of the left. Um, and uh, so I always thought I'd have a better time speaking to them, but I actually had more success coming over from the right. I think that really the the reason why I'm successful at, at bringing people over to libertarianism, um, relatively so, is that I just I've always on an instinctual level kind of known how to talk to people. And then it's it's what Scott Horton, you know, he was the one who really coined it into like a rule, but attack the left from the left and attack the right from the right. But I think I always kind of instinctually did that. And I don't try to rob people of their identity. Um, I try to convince them that their identity should lead them here. And so I, you know, that's always kind of been my strategy. Is is some of that uh, also uh, helpful as a comedian? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You have to like, especially if you're doing like political material as a comedian, you have to find a way to give the audience permission to laugh yeah. uh, at, at what you're saying. And you, you can't 
you know, especially in these hyperpartisan days that we live in, you can't like um, be, you know, you can't just be like, oh, I'm going to tell you leftists why you're a bunch of idiots. You know, it's like it has to be kind of be like here, leftists, here's why you should find this funny, too. Um, and that's always, you know, that's always been part of what I do. Why, um, why do you think a lot of comedians today seem to have lost that countercultural edge? I, like I grew up, I think maybe I'm a little bit older than you, but you know, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, guys like that, they would, uh, they're really at odds with what's going on today. And you would think that, you know, just by the nature of a stand-up comedian being one, you know, one person standing up and trying to point out things wrong with uh, the world in a funny way, you would think that would lead them to think more um, independently about their political affiliations. What, why, why does that seem to be the case? You know, I really, I, I, I like, I agree with what you're saying, and I, I don't exactly know what it is. I think that so many comedians today, it turns out, and I was very disappointed in, in a great number of them, were really, um, really anxious to get approval and to, to you know, like, like it turns out that a lot of them w weren't really willing to challenge the the conventional, you know, beliefs. And I, I think maybe it's just because there's too many of them today. Like there's too many. There's too many stand-up comedians. There's a lot of people in stand-up comedy who shouldn't be there. I really think I really believe that, and and I think most comedians would tell you that. Um, of course, they're never thinking about themselves, and neither <laughs> am I. But you know, there's but they're always like basically everyone you know beneath me shouldn't be in this industry. Um, but you know, back then there were only like a few. There there were a handful of of comedians, and they were people like George Carlin and Richard Pryor who were clearly just made for this. They were made to do this. That's what they were supposed to be doing, and a lot of other people were, you know, who weren't maybe completely made to do this, but were okay enough to get through doing it. And then they get a little bit of success or a little bit of acceptance in Hollywood. And all of a sudden, that's all they wanted. And that's what they really cared about. And Donald Trump broke a lot of their brains. Like he was just so whatever it is about Trump, that makes people so furious at him. What you're never going to find the funny when you're that furious. You have to be almost a little bit disconnected and and kind of transcend the situation and look down on it in order to really find what's hilarious about it and if you're just furious never really comes off that funny yeah i think it's uh it's weird that the comedians on the left especially guys like colbert and people like that they don't seem to get or maybe they just don't want to admit that trump is kind of a comedian he's kind of like a don rickles insult comedian himself and he's he's really good at it yeah um, he's funnier than any of them yeah yeah, he's uh, um, he's for entertainment value alone. I love having him as president. Uh, um, and I, you've been saying something that I, I agreed with and been saying for a while, too, that, um, you know, you think Trump is kind of a shoe in to be reelected unless something really weird happens. And this really weird thing has happened. But for some reason, I I don't seem to really have detected much of a, a shift. I think he still may be safe. Yeah, I, I think I think so. Um, and I think a big part of that is that Trump is just a unique figure who is um, who is just relentless. And a big part of that is that he got very lucky that he caught a matchup with Joe Biden. Yeah. And I'm still I'm still on the fence over whether Joe Biden will actually be the Democratic nominee. It just seems too hard to believe that they would actually go with this guy who, I mean, cannot put a sentence together. 
Yeah. I'm not an exaggeration. Cannot cannot answer one question without stuttering and fumbling and forgetting what he was talking about or best case scenario, just saying something that makes no sense. Um, like that's the best you can hope for out of Biden. I think if he was running against Bernie Sanders, if Bernie Sanders had had the courage and the yeah. fight to, to win the nomination that was his from the beginning, I think there would be a real I, I think that would be a real challenge for him, especially considering the fact that by the time these lockdowns are over, you're probably going to be looking at minimum 30 million Americans who have lost their jobs. How many of those Americans health care was tied to their jobs and now don't have health care in the middle of a pandemic? They're scared out of their minds. They have nothing. And Bernie Sanders has a message for those people, which is you get health care, you get some stuff. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, Ron Paul. Uh, I know he's a hero to both of us. And um, he's uh, you. Was it the Giuliani moment specifically that that hooked you? Well, it, that was the moment that introduced me to Ron Paul. I, I had no idea who he was, and I saw the, the Giuliani-Ron Paul exchange, which really should be called the Ron Paul moment, right. but we all call it the Giuliani <laughs> moment. Um, but I saw that, and I, I thought to myself, who the hell is that guy? That makes a lot of sense. And then I just was interested, and I wanted to, to learn more about him. And so I just started Googling them and looking up all this stuff. And then, yeah, that was ultimately what led me down the rabbit hole. So that's where you found the Mises Institute and, and people like Rothbard and Mises and stuff like that. How do you um, would you have take look at yourself a year before you started going down that rabbit hole? Would you have thought that that's the particular rabbit hole you'd go down? Oh, no, I never would have imagined that it, it, it would have gone that way. It's just everything kind of lined up perfectly. I, I, I was already very anti-war uh, before hearing Ron Paul. I hated George W. Bush, and I saw through a lot of the, the lies and the, the evil of his administration. But from a very standard, like, man, we better get these Democrats in there because George W. Bush is so terrible, like a, a standard, you know, moderate left-wing view. Um I never would have imagined that I would have become a hardcore libertarian, but it just everything kind of lined up. I was introduced to Ron Paul. I started reading more about it. I heard his whole, you know, pitch about free market economics, and I was kind of intrigued by it. And then the economy collapsed. And the only people who were saying anything that made sense were the Austrians. And nobody else even had a theory about the boom bust. It's not like there were competing theories. The The CNBC line was like, greed got out of control right yeah that was it <laughs> people weren't greedy before but all of a sudden right. they got greedy yeah no greed peaked right around 2005 <laughs> 2006 and then it crashed in 2008 that this was their their answer yeah um so you've uh, become a really good um uh, explainer about Austrian economics and stuff like that. And uh, I, I heard you talk at, at at one point on another podcast, I think you didn't have any previous training in economics. It's not like you had a, a degree or a Keynesian and had and had a switch. What do you think it's the that? Why do you think you latched on to the economic side of things as you went down that rabbit hole and how it you internalize it and now you're able to be such a good communicator of it. Why, why that and not one of the other aspects of libertarianism? Well, I mean, there, there were several aspects of libertarianism that I really loved, but the, I think part of it was that in 2008, the economy was like a really big deal. And, and there was this event and I, and I understood nothing about it. And I kind of wanted to know what was going on in the world. And 
the the Austrian boom bust theory, as well as just Austrian economics in general, just made so much sense. And once you kind of wrap your head around it and understand it, it, I found it impossible for anybody to persuade me otherwise, because it's just like, you know, it, it's kind of like if you see the the curtain pulled and you see the man behind the curtain, you can say pay no attention, you know, and look at the wizard. But I already know what's behind the curtain. You can't convince me otherwise. And as far as being a good, you know, uh, communicator or, or being good at explaining it, I really think I'm just, you know, I think that. I'm just barely smart enough to understand this stuff, and I'm dumb enough to still be able to, you know, explain it to most people. And I, you know, like I, I, I always saw what my role would be in this from the very beginning, where we've got these, like, we've got so many of these brilliant guys, like all the guys at the Mises Institute and Ron Paul and all of these brilliant guys, but I could always just put this into layman's terms and exp- and explain to Joe Sixpack because that's kind of who I am that it's like okay here well here here's more or less what he's saying and this is why it makes sense for us yeah um when um when did you start sort of working libertarianism into your stand up and talking about it with other stand ups what what went into the decision to do to try to merge the two well it was a real you know like what when Ron Paul used to call it the revolution, you know, and and a lot of people who were involved in it, we would call it the Ron Paul revolution, and and it may not have been a revolution for the country, um, like we had hoped, but it's for me personally, it was nothing short of a revolution. I mean, it was in in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. I, I my whole understanding of the world was just being blown, and I became obsessed with reading, uh, you know, libertarian literature, and. I never made a conscious effort like I'm going to start doing this in my stand up. It just happened that the thing I was obsessed with started coming out in what I would want to talk about on stage. And then I kind of had, you know, it gave me like um, this product differentiation from everybody else because I had this angle that I saw things through that nobody else really had. And so, you know, like I was kind of the only game in town in terms of like a hardcore Austro-Libertarian comedian. (laughs) And so I just kind of, you know, it kind of just came together. And then, of course, like good friends of mine and stuff like that. I mean, if you're going through a personal revolution, you're probably going to mention it to them. So it all just kind of organically happened and kind of came together. It was never like something I I sat down and thought about, like, how am I going to work a libertarian message into my comedy? I, what I do with my standup is what I've always done is I just I try to think about what's really hilarious and, you know, and, and go from there. Has it cost you any bookings or harmed any relationships? Uh, you're, and especially maybe let's get into some of the cultural stuff that being sort of anti SJW that, um, you know, that that can be kind of tricky these days. So how have you navigated that? Well, I've never it's never you know, it's like the scene versus the unseen. So I'm sure it has cost me some bookings and I'm sure my career would be on a different path if I, if I hadn't gone in this direction, but I I've never had anybody be like, we won't hire you for this. Now I do know other people, uh, straight up. I know, I know people who, um, comedy central, and I won't say the the name of the person, but I know a person from comedy central who they, they reached out to a good friend of his because they had heard he was a Trump supporter and asked whether he was. 
And of course, the good friend had the common sense to be like, no, no, he's not a Trump supporter. <laughs> and they were like, oh, OK, good. Then we'll book him. Right. Um, so there, there is stuff like that. And so I'm reasonably sure that being, a, you know, a, a libertarian closed some doors for me, but it opened other doors. And, I'm the, you know, I'm very happy with what I do um, in terms of, you know, the social justice warrior stuff that really never was never a problem for me during the Obama years. But after uh, Trump got in, there was like this lockdown on anybody who questioned the, um, you know, the, the conventional social justice wisdom. And um, yeah, I've, I've had some, some problems with that and been labeled, you know, uh, um, you know, like a white supremacist or whatever it is from their point of view. But for, for me, I had already at that point kind of figured out my career and built up my own audience and had my podcasts and stuff like that. So it's just kind of noise in the background to me. And it's it's fine. I mean, we live in an age where if you're going to be an edgy comedian, if you're going to make if you're going to be unapologetic and, and say, you know what I mean, like make dark jokes and things like that then it's like you got to accept you're not going to do Saturday Night Live. You're not going to host The Tonight Show. But to be honest, I don't really want to do Saturday Night Live or host The Tonight Show. Like, that's not what interests me. I don't I don't do characters, and I don't feel like just doing filler interviews and making nice with everybody. I like to do stand-up comedy, and I like to rant about politics. Yeah. And so I've got the career that I wanted. Um, speaking about uh, a career that you don't want, uh, how did you get linked up with uh, Robbie Bernstein? Oh, Robbie Bernstein, <laughs> it was just, you know, I was walking by a bridge. He was begging for change. <laughs> he said, I need a sandwich. Can you help me out? I gave him a dollar and he just wouldn't leave. <laughs> and since then, he's just been around. So eventually I was like, all right, grab a mic. I mean, let's do it. Now, I met I met Rob at um at LOL Comedy Club at a really shitty comedy club in uh, in Times Square. And he was uh, he was brand new. It just started comedy. He was doing what's called check spots which is like they let a new comic get up while they're dropping checks. So they throw a new guy up in the most impossible situation when everyone's paying their bills and doesn't want to laugh anyway. And we just started hanging out when he was there and I'd watch him go do these check spots and, and you know, no one's paying attention, but I, I'm paying attention to his jokes. And I was like, oh, Rob's, Rob's pretty funny. And then we just started talking and we became friends. And then one day uh, after we had been friends for like a few months, he just uh, pulls out a copy of uh, David Stockman's book and he goes uh he he goes uh, he knew i was like into politics and stuff like that so he goes uh dave i gotta recommend a book this is a really great book and um and i was like dude i love that book it's phenomenal and you know it was the great deformation is not a book that a lot of people yeah. just feel like oh this is a fun one to right. read like I, I was like oh you like so and then from there on you know we were just friends and we, we were both interested in a lot of the same things and he, then i ended up making him my co-host a few years later and it, it worked out really well so was he already, was that around the time that he was kind of becoming political or had he been a libertarian f or for a while? Do you know? I, I think it was around the time that he was going through his uh, awakening. Okay. Yeah, we'd, uh, I'd love to have him on here too. So maybe we can talk about that later. Uh, after all, he's the king of the cocks and I haven't had him on yet. So That's a good, that is a good point. <laughs> um, can you recommend some other um, good uh, up and coming comedians that uh, maybe are just about to break um i mean i don't know you know it's like the what level of break 
You know what I mean? You mean, but there's there's a whole bunch of like beasts in New York that are like in my that like we started like around the same time that are like really just phenomenal comedians. Um, but like uh, um, I'm sure a lot of people know uh, Dan Soder. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Louis J. Gomez is my brother. He's fucking hilarious. Uh, Sam Morell just put out a phenomenal hour uh, special. I'd recommend him. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting a ton of people, obviously, but uh, uh, Joe List, unbelievable comedian. OK, that, that's OK. Let's uh, maybe if uh, recommend how if somebody wanted to come to New York City and get a taste of, you know, the really good comedy scene. What are some places they should check out and when should they go and things like that? Yeah, literally any day, go to go to the comedy cellar or go to the stand, you know, when they reopen. Yeah. Uh, but those those are the best clubs in the city. And, and any night you go there, you're going to see killers from New York. Yeah. Yeah, that should be fun. Uh, I'd like to do that sometime. Um, let's let's talk about your career in cable news. Uh, how did that start? It was a. Uh, um, I guess so. A friend of mine recommended me to Red Eye, and they they reached out to me, and um and and they ended up booking me on on Red Eye, which was like this late night Fox News show. They used a lot of comedians, and Tom Shalou was hosting it at the time, and he is like a stand up from New York, so we like kind of knew of each other. Um, and so they they booked me on that, and they booked me. They were like, okay, we're we're gonna book you for next month. And then the day after they booked me, Kennedy's producer reached out to me and were like, hey, like we heard you're a libertarian comedian. Uh, we, you know, do you have any stuff you could send us? And I sent them like uh, some of my stand up, some videos of my stand up. And they just like on the spot booked me for the next day. Um, so Kennedy put me on TV for, for the first time ever. And literally from that first time that I did Kennedy, they just they all loved me there. And then I've, I've basically been a regular ever since. Um and then it was just like kind of one thing after another. So I became a regular on Red Eye. I became a regular on Kennedy. Uh, Greg Gutfeld started using me on his show. And then um, Andy Levy, who was the co-host on Red Eye, he left and went to CNN. And I think, you know, to this day, I don't even actually know. But I assume Andy Levy recommended me. And that's why they reached out to me at CNN. And then I got a, a contract over there for a year. And I, I was a contributor on SE Cup's show, Unfiltered. Um and then uh, uh, when my contract ran up, I just came back and started doing uh, uh, Kennedy and Greg Gutfeld again. I've always been interested to know kind of how some of that works. And I don't expect you to give any personal details or anything, but you mentioned a contract. So is it like you're on retainer and they call you up? Uh, I've never you or I've I, never had a contract with uh, with Fox News. I just okay. I just freelance with them. They just call me in when they want me to do the show. Uh, but but CNN did lock me down in a contract. So the, the money was real good over there um, and they could use me as much or as little as they wanted. So I, I had to go if they wanted me. That's the deal right. with the contract. And I couldn't do any other cable news shows. So I could do anything else I wanted to. But I couldn't do any other cable news okay. um, besides them. But um, but, you know, it was th that was really fun, man. I, I still miss that sometimes. That was a really fun show. And it was cool because, you know, doing like Kennedy or doing like those shows. I mean, I love Kennedy. She's like a hero to me. But we we agree on almost everything we end up talking about. Whereas over there, it was like I was battling um, with, with Essie a lot. And there was something about that that I really enjoyed. That was really fun. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's some great, great moments that came out of that. And at one point, I think you said they kind of said, Hey, let's just stop talking about what was it? Syria or, or no, it was whatever. Yemen, <laughs> Yemen is okay. what they told me, which, you know, is not, it's not as black and white as like, they were like, we're trying to, you know, <laughs> silence you or something like that. But they had this thing, um, for a while where they would, uh, um, you know, they, they would let each one of the, the contributors pick a topic at the end of the show. Uh, like what's your big story of, of the day or whatever. And I just, it was Yemen like every day, <laughs> like every day I was like, well, more people died in Yemen. Uh, it's the poorest country in the middle East and we're starving children to death. So let's, and, um, I think by like the third day in a row that I picked Yemen, they were like, Dave, you got to pick something besides Yemen. And I was like, great Syria. So Syria, <laughs> we're starving children to death in Syria. And then after a while, they just took away that segment and they were like, yeah, we're not letting these guys pick their uh, their own topics anymore. And then little by little, like I did, I had a few moments that I really loved that I was really proud of uh, how they came out. And little by little, I felt like they just kind of stopped having me talk about the, the issues I really wanted to talk about. Like all of a sudden you'd come in and it would be like, okay, the panel's going to talk about, you know, these three things, but there wouldn't be anything about war. There wouldn't be anything about the CIA. There wouldn't be anything about, you know, th these topics I want to talk. And then she would have one-on-one -on -one interviews for all those topics. And I just felt this might just be in my head, but I felt like they, they just had had enough of me battling SE cup on war. And they were like, we're just, it's not they they didn't think it was a good look for their show to have some comedian um winning uh, a battle about about you know her what was her number one issue which was the war in syria and she was you know really bad on it um and i gotta say i understand i mean if i if i were just like a producer of the show i probably would have had the same the same feeling yeah so i i i have a a notion and I don't know if I'm right. So that's why I'm asking that a lot of those cable news shows, it almost seems to me like it's professional wrestling, right? That they're playing roles um, that, you know, probably 90% of the people they're either a Democrat operative or a Republican and they kind of like, okay, you know, in the green room, they're kind of piling around with one another and then, okay, let's go out and fight to make people uh, um, uh, watch, tune in and watch. Am I, am I onto anything there or? I, you know, I, I think so, but a lot of it for me, even though I've been a little bit inside is, is also just speculating. I mean, I, I don't exactly know. And, and I've only, you know, I've never like been in the, like the really big shows, you know, I've, I've, I've been, been in like Anderson Cooper and, and Bill O'Reilly or, or Sean Hannity and these guys. So I, I, you know, I don't really know. I do think my, and again, I don't really know this, but my, my suspicion was that Essie Cup was genuine in what she believed and, and that she really does feel that way. But I think that people are very influenced by their environment and there is a thing that you know, and I would always be well aware of this, still am, you just know that there's certain things you can say that will not lead to you getting success at this network. Right. And then you know there are certain things you can say that would, uh, like I have no doubt in my mind, and no one ever sat me down and told me this, it was always just kind of you hear this, you hear that, oh, at Fox News, oh, they're thinking about offering you this or they're thinking about offering you that. And I know if I had taken a standard neoconservative uh, position that things would have opened up for me at Fox News. Um, but I'm not good at faking. So that never would have worked for me anyway. Um, but I'm sure for someone like 
Essie Cup, who's making millions of dollars a year, and she knows what positions she can take that will ensure she continues to make millions of dollars a year. Yeah. And when you got you got a kid and you got bills and things like that, it's very easy. You know, it's not as simple as people just being fake. It's much easier for people to convince themselves that they really believe this, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. How worried do you think uh, the cable news execs are about their viewership numbers, which uh, maybe they've uh, uh, bumped back up with this coronavirus thing, I come to think of it. But where do you see the cable news business in five to ten years? Um, I, you know, I think it depends on on several other factors. Um, like, right, for example, I think the COVID thing has been is just been wonderful for them. I mean, people are stuck at home and they want to watch the news constantly. So I think their problem. My guess is I haven't actually looked at numbers on this, but my guess is that their ratings are doing great. Um, I think if the market was allowed to work, cable news would be dead within five to ten years. Um, I'd be shocked if they made it 10 years. However, with what's going on with, um, you know, uh, online censorship and deplatforming and things like this, if there is a real clampdown of the alternative news sources, like we've already seen, um, then maybe that gives them a little bit more life. So what, what do you think it is that's propping that industry up right now? Well, I think, um, you know, with, with CNN, I mean, they've got like deals with like airports and stuff like that, that I think props up their numbers. Um, Fox News, I think, has a very, uh, you know, genuine, like authentic audience. It's just a very old yeah. Republican audience. I mean, and that audience is going to die out quite literally um, in the next 20 years. Um, but I think that there's, you know, your uh, your Republican father is still watching a lot of Fox News. And I think that your Democrat mother or Democrat father, uh, to some degree, still has a little bit of a, a sense that like, well, CNN is like the cable news network. And, you know, no one really watches MSNBC. Um, but uh, so I, I, you know, I think that that is growing out of the population and that for the most part, younger people just see all this cable news as what it is, a, a bunch of BS. Do you think uh, you think they actually will try to do some Internet censorship or something like that to, to clamp down on the alternative media? And you're right. The, the, the covid stuff might be their excuse. It's like, oh, we can't have people out there uh, putting out information that's uh, bad for public health. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that's the whole fake news thing, which people forget because Donald Trump reappropriated it and made it his own. But the fake news thing started with the cable news calling all of the online news fake news. And um, I, I think all of, that's what all of this was about, was about the fact that the entire uh, corporate press was telling you that Donald Trump's the most horrible person ever. And 63 million people went out and voted for him anyway, enthusiastically, for the most part. And that really freaked them out. And whatever cover story about Vladimir Putin interfering, I don't think it ever had anything to do with that. I think this was about, you know, they have maintained a monopoly on on the gatekeeping for ever. Yeah. And they're they're losing it. And they were they're they're not gonna lose it without fighting back. So yeah. what exactly that looks like, I don't know. Um, but I think that when you see things like 
you know, what, what's happened to just a whole lot of people. I, I mean, a lot of people in our world, too, but like, you know, Alex Jones or or, you know, whoever getting, you know, getting kicked off a, a million people. I could say like, you know, Owen Benjamin and Anthony Cumia and Gavin McGinnis and, and the, the Free Thought uh, Project and like all these different people who have just gotten their their sites down, their their accounts kicked off, all of this. This is one weapon that they're using right now. But as you saw when Congress hauled, uh, um, what's his name, uh, Zuckerberg yeah. in, in front of them, they they want these people cracking down. And I think ultimately they will make them if if they're not satisfied with how quickly they're doing it. Yeah. Speaking of uh, uh, institutions that are kind of struggling to stop uh, their base from eroding, you mentioned the Fox News base, uh, that they're getting older and the I, I think the Fox News base and sort of the Republican Party, there's a lot of uh, overlap there, obviously. And as a libertarian, I've always kind of thought and hoped that uh, as the Republican Party sort of ages out, that that might be where the next realignment in American politics comes from and that hopefully the libertarians can, can take that spot. But where do you see the two party system uh, within the next five to 10 years? Well, I'll say I was, I was very, very optimistic about the outcome that you just spoke of um, around 2012. I mean, I really felt like I was like, we libertarians, we own the, the future of the Republican Party, because all of the young grassroots energy is going for us. And, you know, that kind of got swept away by, I think, a lot of the right wing populism that attracted a lot of younger people, anything from, you know, whatever they, the alt light or whatever they call it, or the alt right even or just but even just the more kind of, you know, less radical strands of, of the new right movement. Um, that kind of has, you know, the populism has really kind of taken away, I think, a lot of our juice and we got to fight to get that back. Um, I do think that we're we're living in the age of populism. And I think after this covid thing, that's only going to be that much more pronounced and extreme and that the libertarians, you know, like it's not like the future isn't predetermined. So it's not just like, well, this is going to happen. It's like, well, what do people like us do? How do we make this work? And I think that we need to figure out a libertarian populist message. I think we need to harness populism and try to drive it into somewhat of a liberty minded direction. Um, and of, and I don't think that should be that challenging to do. I mean, it's like, look, we we understand the, the, the uh, populism better than most populists do. I mean, we really understand how the elite are ripping everybody off. And it's not, you know, it's not through free trade deals. Uh, it, it's through the Federal Reserve, government spending, and and just the cronyism that is our entire economy. Right. And th this is an area where you've gotten some heat and uh, we in the Mises Caucus, people kind of come after us for some reason claiming that we're alt-right and we're not, just, just so you know. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> totally for... Uh, the government staying out of immigration and um, all of that stuff. But uh, that was Murray Rothbard's strategy, right? To kind of try to co-opt the right populism stuff toward the end of his life. How can we do that without, um, without becoming more like the alt-right? How can we do that and stay true to our principles and get that revolution back? Well, I, uh, like, I think that in, in order to do that, 
um, you have to be willing to take on their ideas and actually challenge them, uh, you know, from the right, actually talk about why we're better, like embracing libertarianism is a better decision for those right wingers for like to achieve their ends even. And I don't mean their ends like an ethno state or something stupid like that. But I mean, like people who are against cultural degeneracy and things like that. Um, it's like, okay, well, as most libertarians know, the, the state does more to destroy every civil institution than any anyone could anyone else could possibly even come close. I mean, who's done more to destroy community bonds, family, religion, you know, than than big government? I mean, so you have to find a way to take them on. And what won't do it is just acting like a social justice leftist and yelling racist at everybody when they voice a concern. Um, so I, I think you have to find a way to speak to people and persuade them. And yeah, then that means that, you know, some people will, you know, call you bad names or whatever, but it's uh, honestly, all of that stuff is just noise. And the people who accuse the Mises caucus of being alt-right or accuse me of being alt-right adjacent or sympathizer, or whatever it is, honestly, they, they resonate with nobody. And that's something to, to keep in mind. It's, it's this this stuff doesn't attract anyone. I mean, I've, I've made this point several times before, but I, I almost make it not just to partly to insult those people because they deserve it, but also just to let everybody else like see the point that I'm making. Who uh, who behaves that way in the liberty movement? Do you know who has a big audience? Right. I mean, no, it, this doesn't resonate with anybody. No one actually thinks you're a really good person because you put your pronouns in your bio. And no one's convinced that you care about trans people more than someone else does. You know what I mean? It's like this this isn't working. And so we should be focused on things that actually can be persuasive to people. And one of the ways uh, that we have hoped to do that is through Jacob Hornberger's campaign, which, like just about everything else, has kind of been put on hold here lately. Um, how do you think things were going before the, the COVID stuff? And do you think there's a way that we can still uh, insert ourselves into the national debate in the aftermath of this COVID stuff with hopefully Jacob at the top of the LP ticket? Well, I sure hope so. Um, I think things were going great. You know, um, I think basically like the mission was being accomplished. And that was like the mission that the Mises caucus set out on of of kind of like re uh, of making the party of principle, you know, actually be the party of principle. Um, I think that that Scott and myself and, and of course, Tom Woods and all the people who said we were going to throw our support behind Jacob Hornberger. I think it gave him a real shot in the arm. And, you know, it, it was a uh, um, I think everything was going great. I really don't know what's going to happen now with with the LP. I mean, you you probably know more about this than me, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen if this convention gets canceled. How exactly? I think Nick Sarwak, who who made such a. Uh, uh, stink when when he was debating me about how he doesn't pick the nominee might end up picking the nominee uh, after after all of that. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. And I have a tough time um, uh, imagining that if Sarwak had any say in picking the nominee, that he would pick the nominee who we all support just simply because we all support him. Uh, that's just yeah. my guess. I'm not really trying to take shots at Sarwak yeah. anymore. Nothing against him. Me and him had our battles. He's leaving his chair. I'm just, if I had to guess, I think that he would not support the guy we are supporting, even though he's Jacob Hornberger, who I really don't think there's much he could find objectionable about him. But I, so, so if that ends up happening, it's, you know, it's anybody's guess. 
uh, what ends up happening. If Hornberger ends up getting the nomination, I, I think that the next battle will be the fact that they're not going to treat him like Gary Johnson because they know he's not Gary Johnson. So they're not going to invite him in for CNN town halls. They're not going to be bringing him on on Morning Joe and all of these shows because they know he he knows where Aleppo is. They right. know he's not going to you know uh, fold like that. So then the next challenge will be getting people to listen. But this is this is anyone's guess. Yeah. Um, one of the rays of hope uh, with the scenario that you just brought up is I think there's a pretty strong uh, undercurrent going that if if we can't have the convention and the LNC does have to pick the candidates, I think they're going to do like a pretty um, well-run straw poll and try to actually then reflect what they want. So I think that there might, Nick may kind of, his hands may be tied, uh, hopefully. But then again, I don't know. He, I don't know what he thinks about Jacob, but he's one of those guys that I don't know what he thinks about anything because he seems to, whatever mood he's in on a particular day on Twitter. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I want to ask you about, uh, being a father. You've, t- it's been interesting listening to you talk about this over the last year or so. Um, and I know that, you know, you get to spend a lot of time home now. That must be great. So how has it, how has it changed you personally and professionally? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's such a profound change that it's almost hard to answer that question in a way. I, I genuinely, me and my wife joke around about this sometimes, but it's, it's almost hard for me to even remember what it was like before I was a father. It's, it's hard to picture my life without my, uh, my little girl in it because she's, she's the whole center of it. It's, um, it's it's changed everything about the way I see the world and look at the world. There's no nothing. Um, you never know a person as well as you know your children because you're you're literally there through every inch of their life, studying them constantly, staring at them in a way that you don't stare at other people. What you know, watching her as you rock her to sleep, like you know that you you learn how a person falls asleep in a different way than you ever knew. So I I think you just you understand human beings in a different way. You understand your own childhood in in a different way because you're you're there playing a different role now. Um, uh, but you know, I, I would just say being a father is just, it's just the absolute best. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm so lucky. I get this just perfect, beautiful little angel that I roll around on the floor with every day. And that really has made all of this, uh, um, all of this lockdown, uh, uh, so much easier, um, for me because I just have, have so much fun hanging out with my daughter all day. And my wife, who's the best person I know. Yeah, that's great. My wife is the best person I know, and we're trying to have kids. So hopefully I'm going to join you in all that. Uh, well, best uh, of luck. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, we've got a hard break coming up. So I thought uh, we'd do something kind of uh, fun and let you maybe um, give us some comedy movie recommendations uh, that we should be watching to lift our spirits over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so what would you watch or rewatch? Well, I'd say I my favorite comedy probably of all time is Tommy Boy. I just cannot I, I literally I've probably watched that movie a hundred thousand times and I never stop laughing. I think every damn scene is hilarious. Um so I'd go with that one there. Um oh I don't know. I love all I love Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin and you know, I just saw uh the other day, because it was randomly on TV, was uh Naked Gun. Oh, which yeah. man, all three of those are still they really hold up. They're just so funny. So there's there's a few to start with. Go go rewatch every Naked Gun. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, all 33 and a third of them. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, what about some, uh, stand up? uh, like, what do you think, what do you think about the Netflix, the quality of comedy on Netflix stand up comedy? And is there anything you'd recommend there? Well, it's just like everything else with the state of, uh, stand up comedy. There's way too much of it. And so, uh, you know, like you, it's easy to be like, Oh my God, there were all these terrible specials, but there are some really amazing ones. Um, I would, uh, um, Let's say I, I mean, I just watched uh, Louis new special, which I really enjoyed. Not on Netflix on Netflix. I think they got like three or four Bill Burr specials that are just freaking incredible. I mean, if you haven't watched Bill Burr do an hour of comedy, it's just he's the master just to me, the the best in America. I loved uh, Chappelle's most recent one. Uh, thought that was incredible. And that he, they've got a few of his. And I would recommend here's one that that some of you may not know about. But uh, Nate Bargatze. Is uh, he's got, I believe, two up there on Netflix, and he is just one of the funniest human beings uh, in America. Just an incredible, incredible stand-up. Highly recommend uh, people go check him out. Uh, speaking of Bill Burr, he's done a little acting. Have you ever thought about trying to get into that? Oh, no, dude. I'm never going to go the acting the okay. acting route. I am the world's worst actor. This is again, this is why I could never uh, be a neocon and just go get a, <laughs> a show on, on Fox news. I am the world's worst actor. I got, when I first started in standup comedy, my first manager, actually not my first real manager. I had a manager, but he was kind of just pretending to be a manager. But my first real manager I had sent me out on a few auditions. And like by the third one, I was like, I think you got to stop sending me out on these <laughs> auditions. Cause I'm never going to get a part. And I am just, it is painful. I cannot act. And I honestly, I don't really, I don't like acting. I don't like, you know, like people would be like, well, you just got to take an acting class. And I'd be like, but I don't want to. Right. I don't want to get better at this. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get better at being fake. I don't like it. I mean, I like movies as much as the next guy, but I don't want to be an actor. I just want to, I just want to do stand up and rant about politics for the rest of my life and, and take care of my girls. That's all I care about. That's great. Um, uh, I, I, th this would be the time where I ask you to plug your upcoming gigs, but you don't <laughs> have any, but, uh, you do have one. Hopefully the, you're going to be the MC of freedom fest. Is it this year or next year? Or do it's, we know yet <laughs> this year? I mean, assuming I got an email from them like a few weeks ago and they were like, look, we're still, everything's still going ahead as normal. So that's the plan. I'm going to MC all of freedom fest, uh, this year. I'm very, very excited to do that. A lot of really great people are going to be going to be out there. Just, I'm really got my fingers crossed that the world is back to normal normal uh this summer um i assume the virus won't be spreading you know too much uh this summer and and we can make it happen but yeah that's that's the plan and uh then as soon as as soon as the these lockdowns are lifted i'm gonna get back to going on the road and i you know i've been i'm trying to work on this new hour special which has been a little bit derailed by all of this but i'm gonna get right back to that and uh you know of course part of the problem legion of skanks all that stuff Yep. Uh, looking for, I, I love part of the problem. Um, I need, I'm a little bit behind, so I'm going to have to get into that. Uh, now that we're, now that we're finished here. Um, is there anything else, uh, on your mind that, that you want to drop you? It's about time for us to go, but, uh, um, I, I would just say that uh, that right now, uh, libertarians, this is our moment, yep. and and we got to embrace it. This is we're we're entering the age of uh, authoritarianism, uh, bailouts, um, and whether uh, whether you're ready for it or not, this is your moment. Monetary policy is now back in the conversation in a way that it hasn't been uh, uh, since Ron Paul was running for president, and and you got to get out there and and explain to everybody you know. 
uh, what the government has done to people yep. in their hour of need. They just put tens of millions of people out of work and robbed them blind to pay off the big bankers. And uh, let's get this liberty movement going again, because I don't know if you look around and you see bankers being bailed out and cops dragging people off of buses for the crime of not wearing a mask. But if you don't think this country desperately needs a liberty moment right now, I think uh, I don't know when we would. You're right. I've been telling people that uh, uh, the Mises caucus, this is our time that, you know, we've never been more needed than we are right now. And we will be as this uh, the lockdown starts to lift. So I, re- I, I really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. And I hope to uh, see you down the road uh, in person again. I, I met you briefly at the Sarwak debate, but I wasn't going to bring all that up because <laughs> <laughs> you're the one who brought Nick up this time. So, <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Aaron. It was a pleasure talking to you. Okay. We'll see you, Dave. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you have it, the great Dave Smith. I'd like to thank Dave for taking the time that he could be spending with his family to talk to us. I'd also like to thank Dave versus Goliath for all the music you always hear on Decentralized Revolution. And I'd like to thank you for listening, sharing the podcast, rating it, reviewing it, and for your support of Mises Caucus and Mises Pack. You can set up a monthly contribution, sign up for the email newsletter, and all that sort of thing at TakeHumanAction.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time when my guest is the author of a great book called The Social Singularity, Max Borders. Wow, wow.